You're gonna meet up with the Dependables. Move up with the Dependables. Move out. Hey everybody and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars. I'm Randy Cardoon. Everybody has a car story. Steve Mignante is living the dream, not only getting a chance to get close to classic cars, but he gets paid for it. He's on the broadcast crew of the Barrett-Jackson Auctions on Velocity, which returns the end of June with their first ever event in Connecticut. So where did his love of cars begin? It really started, I was about five or six. My mom got me a matchbox car, and I loved the thing so much, she saw it light me up. So my brother and I would get off our school bus every Friday and it'd be a new matchbox car sitting on a table. My brother, he's now an optic, he, what is it, my, my brother's an eye surgeon, and so he's not into cars today. However, uh, back in the day, he wasn't so much into cars then either. So I would trade him candy for his matchbox car. So every Friday, I ended up with two. He didn't care. I did. So <laughs> matchbox cars led to model cars, 125th scale plastic, and realization that I could put different engines from different models in and, and swap them and make cars. So that really, uh, model cars and, and toys led to a full-sized automotive interest. Uh, but it all started about age five or six. Two key questions. Do you remember what that first Matchbox car was? You know, it probably would have been, there was a Mercury commuter station wagon with two little dogs in the back. There was also a Studebaker. Number 73, but I'm not a Matchbox, a holic at all. No kidding. Number 73. (laughs) Lime green, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Now, I got mine right on the edge of super fast when I went from those funny little button wheels to the super fast. So I had one of each, actually, but but I loved them both. And, of course, there was a white little Mustang fastback, the 2 plus 2. And the funny thing about Matchbox was that, unlike Hot Wheels, Matchbox was English, Lesney, I guess it was, the British company. So we were educated as little American kids to the world of foreign cars, the Fiat, the Isogrifo, Grifo, however you even say it. As a kid, I was like, oh, what is it? These different things. Whereas Hot Wheels, out of Torrance, California, was all American, Camaros, Chargers. So I love the matchboxes because it turned my mind on to the fact that there's a world out there beyond American cars. I mean, you didn't see many Citroens back then, and who knew what a Vauxhall Victor was? That's right. If you had matchbox cars, there you go. A Peugeot, all those little funny little cars. Commer, all those funny names on those things. Do you, do you still have them? I do. Most of them, I really do. You know, I mean, I, I have the ones, um, I do. A lot of them that crushed, I used to put in my pocket. We used to trade them as kids. I'd trade them back. I'd paint them with my little brush, put testers paint on them. And I still have them. They're crushed and smashed, but they're, I love them. Still have so you said that uh, the other question is, so you traded candy for them. What kind of candy, or did it matter? Well, M&M's, plain M&M's, baby, or Snickers bars, but mostly plain M&M's. That was my thing. That should basically be the... the uh weight of money uh, in some countries, including some kids, too. It's a currency. You know, the funny thing is, I grew up in a little town called West Brookfield, Massachusetts. I still live in North Brookfield, about four miles away, and uh, we lived in about two miles out of town. My mom used to basically use car- M&M's as a currency. She'd have me and my brother ride our bicycles downtown and bribe us to go down and get a half-pound bag of M&M's, and we'd ride down to the, the local store and come right back in like 20 minutes. So M&M's were a currency around our house to get jobs done and, and and our chores done around the, around the house. Your parents drove what kind of car? Well, you know, the funny thing is my father <clears throat> was an optical physicist. My mom was kind of a graphic designer. Neither of them came from an automotive factory. In fact, my grandfather is Charles Magnanti. Google him. Uh, a, a famous world, worldwide accordionist, of all things. Played for NBC. And uh, so he was automo- He was a musical guy. My father was a physicist, and my mom was not in a car. So I don't know where I came from. My dad had a string of Volkswagen Beetles, and my mom didn't learn to drive till about age 30. Her first car was a, fo- a, a Volvo station wagon, a 1967 122S. We bought new in New York City. 
And um, yeah, so not an automotive background. So when you got your first car, where did it come from? Did you buy it? Did you get it a hand-me-down? Or Yeah, basically my first car that was in my name was a 1969 American Motors Ambassador four-door Civil Air Patrol fleet car. My dad bought it for me for 500 bucks. I spotted it. I love that it still had Civil Air Patrol logos and for official use only on the doors. Now, I was then about 17, used to listen to Black Flag. We rode skateboards around, and we probably made a bad name for the Civil Air Patrol. But somehow I got this thing with the logo still on it. So we jump out of the car, ride our skateboards around, listen to punk music. It was goofy. But anyhow, beyond that, uh, my, my grandma passed away about 1986, left me some money, and I used the money my dad didn't know to buy a 68 Hemi Charger, numbers matching car. I told my dad that I got a loan. Well, <clears throat> I did. I bought the car straight up. So it was a 68 Hemi chart. I went from driving the Ambassador and then a Lacar after that, a Renault Lacar. I'm me. sorry. <laughs> yeah. well, I would say this, this Renault way, I'll ever have another Lacar. <laughs> so... But I went uh, basically in a Hemi Charger overnight. So I had that car for three years, and I, I bought it for ten grand. I sold it for $16,000. My dad says, you know what? Don't do it again. <laughs> how, how did you know to get a numbers matching Hemi, or just was that a fluke? Well, this was back in the 80s. Now, i got to say, I was born in 1964. You do the math. I'm not a child, but I might as well be. But anyhow, um, in the 80s, you know, the first muscle car awareness, the first boom was kind of kicking in. You know, muscle car review magazine, car exchange, uh, Schneider's muscle car classics. Those magazines were hitting the newsstands. And we all really became aware that these cars were special. 30 years ago, right? So anyhow, um, I knew Hemis were something to have. You know, GTOs, 442s, Shelbys, they were cool, but I wanted a Hemi. So anyway, I started looking around and I found this car and uh, it was a numbers matching car. It was in primer, but it was all there. It had headers and these kind of goofy 15 by 8 wheels, these big Ram Charger rims, but I loved it. And uh, I drove the car, did a little street racing, never got caught and, you know, do th dangerous things safely, folks. Safely, 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 right? Anyway. But um, it was. Does that mean put in seat belts or what? It hit seat belts, yeah. yeah okay, but okay. it's about not endangering other people. Let's put it that way. You know what I mean? We did it in the middle of nowhere, not on a highway. These crazy movies today, Fast and Furious. I love the movies to watch, but man, don't take that seriously. Don't get on the freeway and start flying through traffic. That's just crazy. Don't do. But anyhow, so I had the Hemi Charger. I loved what it represented, but I also, that car cured me of the need to have numbers matching 10 tenths cars because. I remember I put slicks on it and the rear quarter panel grew a crack. Card plastic in the body, right? So I'm thinking, oh no. So I never really restored it. I drove it like it was, sold it, and anyhow, um, you either own your car or it owns you. That's the thing I've kind of learned. So I now have hot rods and clones and just beaters that I happen to like. By the way, in case you hear the music, we are coming to you from Barrett-Jackson. We're outside in the Gas Monkey Garage. So you had a 68 Charger. You know, you've had, I assume, a bunch of cars. I, I really have. You know, the funny thing is, in the 80s, you could still get like 383 Roadrunners and even like GTOs for five grand. That seemed like a lot of money. It really was, you know. Uh, you know, I think I made $22,000 my first job. I got, I got out of college in 1986. I was an English major. And uh, I worked at CVS Pharmacies as an assistant manager trainee, and I, it was mind-numbing. I had to get out of there. Anyhow, with that said, you know, making twenty, three, four thousand bucks, a five-thousand-dollar car was a lot of money, but you could still get them pretty cheap. So um, anyhow, there was a fair number. I had three forty Dart convertible, seventy-three Cuda three forty, a real numbers car, uh, seventy Coronet five hundred convertible, three eighty-three four-speed, rusty car. But I grew up in Massachusetts, so a lot of these cars were rusty, you know, and Bondo and plastic filler. And the word restoration, by the way, if there's any structural rust in your car and your Bondo on it, it's not restored. Get that stuff out of it, weld in steel, get it done again. So the word restoration is often misused.
All right, so the, we've turned the volume down on the music now. Uh, we know people. So Steve actually works here, so it's all right. We, you, you know people, and it's too bad because we do love Creedence. Yeah, oh, Creedence is great. You know, it's funny. I was born in 64, and by rights, I guess I should be a, a child of the 70s or 80s, you know, with an interest in disco and stuff. But I remember as a kid looking back at age 12, I went to a record store, found a bunch of, like, Country Joe and the Fish, Deep Purple, Vanilla Fudge, Hendrix, Doors, and that music and those cars kind of shaped me. Uh, and, you know, disco and, 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 and pop, I, I just never fell for it. Well, well, and it's different cruising down the road in your classic car listening to something like that, what we just heard in the background. You know, Credence as a, compared to Andrea True Connection. Right, right. Or Highway Star, Deep Purple, man. What a great song that is to crank up and, and haul butt in, in a car. One of the questions, and we usually ask four really basic questions. We, we talked about one was your first car. You've had plenty of cars. Is there a car that you've had that you no longer have that you wish, man, I wish I didn't get rid of that one? You know, it's funny. Not really. You know, I mean, a lot of folks do that, but I usually find that selling one car led to something next whether it was another car in some cases or in, in the case of that Hemi Charger, I sold that car, I bought it for 10 grand, sold it for 16, put the money into a 64 Dodge Polara, which I turned to a Max Wedge clone. And what do you know, I lost exactly $6,000 on that car, so I broke even in the end. But selling that car allowed me to move to Los Angeles from Massachusetts. That happened in 1991, and Los Angeles was where kind of everything happened for me in a way. I got a job at Hot Rod Magazine, which led to work for Speed Channel, which led to this gig now. So to go back and get one of the cars back, I'm okay. I have a few cars now. There's one right now that I think I'll never get rid of. It's, it's a 63 Dodge Dart altered wheelbase funny car called the Ram. Page. If you Google Rampage Altered Wheelbase, you'll see it on the web. But uh, that has a 512 Max Wedge. It's a replica of an old-time Southern-style match race drag car. I drive it on the street. It's totally streetable. That's something I think I'll keep forever. Well, we've been, if you've uh, been a person that has watched the uh, Barrett-Jackson auctions, you see cars, especially Mopar, old vintage Mopar racers. The Ram Chargers have been through here. Uh, did, did you get that? Have you ever bought a car? while working at Barrett-Jackson? I mean, have you ever, like, sat there and done your thing and in the meantime kept an eye on this car you're bidding on? You know, we can bid on cars. My stage partner, Mike Joy, has actually bought some cars up there. But me, you know, I have six cars, and I'm okay. There are some times when I say, man, I, I could have bought that car, and I kind of should have because it went cheap. But in the end, I'm, I'm here to make money, you know, and, and to look at the cars and stuff. And I, it's true, you can only drive one car at a time, folks. You have a fleet of 100 cars, you can only drive one at a time. So I'm okay, I, but I've never bought one here but who's to say I, I won't say I never will we can if we want but when we're on stage we're told if we're going to start bidding lay out and don't talk about the car because it's a clash of interests well yeah I was going to say wouldn't that be kind of weird no it's got a great engine here and by the way oh by the way I'll take uh, 120 on that yeah yeah Mike, Mike Joy he's done that actually I think four Seriously? years ago yeah well no no he's never talked about the car he says hey Steve I'm going to bid on this one you take it you got it Mike no problem and it was I think a 71 429 Torino that he bought well and I think he still has but he's we can bid on him but I I just don't at this point in time so that, that is hysterical just to think about if we do, so basically if we're, we're listening to you guys and it's just you and Rick and we don't hear Mike it's like well wait a minute maybe what what happened to Mike well could it be he's bidding on the car <laughs> it has happened <laughs> <laughs> you said you have six cars tell me about the cars you have in your garage well there's the rampage altered wheelbase darts and by the way if, if you don't know I'm a fanatic about altered wheelbase funny cars I wrote a book called how to build altered wheelbase cars car tech book google it you'll find it but altered wheelbase cars as you may or may not know 1965 Chrysler brought out a small fleet of 10 cars 11 cars with the wheels 
wheels moved forward under the body for more traction for drag racing. So anyway, whether they're original or clones slash replicas, I love them. So I have had three in my life. So I have the Rampage Dart. I also have an 81 Ford Fairmont with an altered wheelbase, straight axle up front, a Ford Cobra camera motor under the hood, six-speed transmission, so that's one. Also have an 84 Ford Mustang convertible, five-liter, uh, a 63 Dodge Dart Slant 6 with an aluminum block that I'm putting together. Slant 6, impressive. You're, you're going to actually stick with that engine. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the Slant 6 is kind of a cool engine. Uh, also a 76 Dodge D100 long bed pickup, factory 440, a weird, that's the biggest motor you could get at 190 horsepower that year no compression but it's a big block pickup and my daily driver is a smart car I kid you not a smart for two I'm not a green guy yeah we got to be responsible but it's if, if you ever get told to put your go-kart away by a cop when you're a kid this is the answer I mean it's a peppy zippy little critter and uh, it's a small vehicle I like it the one thing I will say is that for its small size it's not the fuel economy champ you'd think you'd think 60 to 100 miles per gallon 40 only 40 yeah it's a weird car but I, I like it that's my daily driver that's yeah well that's that's the thing it's like I drive an insight because it gets me 40 to 50 miles per gallon. And I always say driving that car will allow me to drive my classic cars. Yeah, yeah they kind of balance. You know, I, I get in my 512-inch Max Wedge Dart, you know, and I, the <laughs> sun gets a little brighter, I guess, because the ozone's going away. But, you know. <laughs> How did you get from uh, doing Hot Rod Magazine and doing that kind of thing, making the transition to working on TV and eventually the Barra Jackson auctions. Yeah, well, you know, in 1991, when I when I sold that that Max Wedge Polara and made my money back, you know, paid off my student loans, moved from Massachusetts, Massachusetts to Los Angeles to either act or write for Hot Rod. Those are my two goals. Uh, the acting thing, I got to say, I took workshops. I had Toby McGuire in my class, Allison Hannigan, Brittany Murphy, rest in peace, honey. She's a great gal and she passed away. But they were in my class, you know, just, just other kids who maybe wanted to do some acting. They did a lot. I didn't do so much. I found that memorizing the dialogue was one task too many. Be, be believable and memorize. I couldn't do it. But that said, I was hired at Hot Rod Magazine in 1998, and that was my other dream. It happened. And uh, in doing Hot Rod, there was a thing called Hot Rod Magazine TV that you might have seen for years and years on Speed Channel. Joe Elmore, Chuck Hansen were the hosts. Well, around 1999, I guess it was, <clears throat> they, they set themselves free, and Hot Rod Magazine needed a staff. So the publisher came and said, hey, guys, you guys on staff, me, Jeff Koch, Roe McGonigal, Terry McGeehan, Gray Baskerville, you guys are on staff. You're the new crew of Hot Rod TV. They said, no. I said, yeah, because it kind of melted my two things. So anyhow, the, the folks at Speed Channel, mostly Rick Miner, uh, saw me on, on, um, on Hot Rod TV. We'd go to the junkyard, look for nine-inch axles out of Ford vans and stuff. And I said, you want to try Barrett Jackson, Florida? Yeah, and that was 11 years ago. So still at it. That's how it happens. So you do a bit sometimes, and I suppose you'll do it this time around, where you basically get blindfolded and they, and, and they try to get you to guess the kind of car that you're feeling, so to speak. So you could do it by your finger. Now, where did that come from? Well, that's called Feel the Steel. And uh, I was watching American Idol. You know, at the time, I, my girlfriend and I, there's a fellow, I forget his name, he was from Scottsdale, a brilliant pianist who would play the piano amazingly. He had no eyesight. But I thought to myself, you know, he was, I forget his name. But anyhow, I thought to myself, you know, some folks do really amazing things without seeing it. And I thought, you know what, hang on now. Can you tell a car by touching it? I said, you know, you can. The reality is, most people, if you have their close their eyes, put their hands on a fender of a 427 Corvette and a Volkswagen Beetle, they will tell you what kind of car it is. No joke. So that was the growth of it. But the funny thing is, right now, as you know, we've, we've been through Speed TV, Fox Sports, now Velocity. 
and Velocity at this point in time, only this last year, they don't see the value of Feel the Steel for some reason. So it's it's dormant, to put it that way. Well, <laughs> Bo, Bo Velocity, what's the matter with you guys? That was a great bet. Yeah, yell at David Lee. We love you, David, but yeah, I don't know. They don't want to do it anymore. Who knows? But anyhow, but yeah, Feel the Steel was fun. Uh, I've never failed. At one time, they put me on a 56 DeSoto, and I didn't feel the dashboard, and yeah, I went down in flames. But largely, it's true. If you if you close your eyes and touch a car, here's the hint. Start at the A-pillar, which is the windshield, and then feel the hood and the grill. You'll know it right away. The only punchline, we had one fellow who said, hey, you can do it, but you got to wear gloves. I couldn't do it. You need your fingertips, to like on a Mach 1 Mustang. I mean, if you know the cars, you'll feel like where the stickers on the hood are or are not. But if you don't have your fingertips, you have your gloves on, it ain't going to work. Last thought, and that's a lot of cars out there. You've got six. What's number one on the Steve Magnante? I want that list. Wow. Oh, it changes every second. It really does. Really, really does. But I'm a big fan of factory-built drag cars. And in here at this auction, Scottsdale 2016, there's one car in particular. Uh, it may not look like much, but it's, it's something amazing. It's a 63 Pontiac Catalina Swiss Cheese Super Duty. That's a mouthful. But you got to remember, Pontiac was very active in super stock and factory experimental NHRA drag racing in 62 and 3. And they had this thing called the Catalina. They said, how can we make this thing light? This car has aluminum fenders, aluminum bumpers, aluminum hood, aluminum exhaust manifolds, and the frame to lighten was Swiss cheesed. In other words, they punched holes everywhere they could without reducing too much strength. And as a result, they put took 500 pounds out of this car. So it's a big Catalina that weighs close to a 427 Galaxy, but not quite as good as a Maxwich Mopar. So it was a, an attempt to really make uh, a, a big car light. So the factory engineering that went into that thing just makes it stand out. It's an amazing piece. So here at this show, this minute, I think the 63 Catalina Swiss cheese would be something I'd love to have. It's probably going to go for three or 400, who knows what. So it's not going to happen. But I love stuff like that. Factory drag cars and factory high-performance engineering. Just You can't beat it. Barrett Jackson announcer Steve Magnante. Again, check him out when Velocity broadcasts the next Barrett Jackson Northeast show June 23rd through the 25th. When you think of going to school at UC Santa Barbara, northwest of Los Angeles, well, you think of a school at the beach where surfing, beach volleyball, and other water activities are king. But Townsend Bell, well, he's different. He grew up in San Luis Obispo, went to UCSB, and just finished a run as a driver in the Indy 500. Before the race, I caught up with Bell, wondering how he got from Santa Barbara to the Brickyard. Well, when I was 11 years old, uh, I went to the Indy 500 with my dad um, just as a, a special trip and absolutely fell in love with the sport and was uh, just completely mesmerized by the speed and the challenge and, and all of that. Um, came back to California and started racing go-karts, and uh, that was 30 years ago that I went to the Indy 500, so I'm making my 10th start uh, in the greatest spectacle in racing. So for people who kids are into baseball or basketball and they schlep all over the place trying to get them to tournaments and stuff, was that kind of the same thing that your folks had to do except the equipment was heavier? Uh, exactly, and, and, and a little more expensive. Um, you know, there's a whole kind of go-kart racing scene uh, in, in California, very competitive. Um, and, uh, and so I started in that, and then when I went off to college at UCSB, I stopped racing and thought I was just going to be on the normal, normal path, uh, if you will, go to college, get a job, um, you know, rock it in a cubicle. And uh, by my junior year in college, I realized, man, I really have a passion for racing. I always thought I was, I was pretty capable. 
Um, so I dropped out of school. Uh, actually, I transferred. I told my mom I'm transferring to Skip Barber Racing School. Which Same thing. A, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they give you they gave you a degree at the end of three days, and I thought that sounded pretty good. Um, so I kind of got my start there. The only problem was I uh, my parents were kind of like, "Hey, thumbs up, go for it," but you know you're on your own. Um, so I didn't have any money, and uh, I had to hustle big time just to get my first chance in like amateur racing. What was your major at Santa Barbara? I think it was business economics. I'm kidding. Yeah, it was. It was business <laughs> economics. But I was the, the first three years, I was the captain of the water ski team. So um, that was that was the, the bulk of my focus. But I was in my junior year uh, when, I, when I decided to stop and pursue racing full-time. And I just recently got a copy of my transcript because uh, I was just sort of curious, like, man, you know, maybe I'll go back at some point and just finish up, at, you know, mid-40s, do the Rodney Dangerfield thing. Which was? <laughs> well, there, there, there are so many places to go. Uh, what are you talking about? The stand-up comedy? Are you talking about uh, the, oh, no, the I meant, plot uh, to the movie? What was the, what's the movie when he goes back to school? Is it called Back, back to School? Back to School, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. I didn't know if you were going to go on The Tonight Show. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. Okay. Absolutely. And, all right. You know, it's one of the things we do on my podcast talking about cars is we always are really interested in people's car stories and the cars they grew up with. What were you driving in high school and in college? your first car my very first car was a 1971 oldsmobile vista cruiser which was like a nine or ten passenger station wagon that uh had a 455 cubic inch big old v8 made a lot of power and uh, i bought it from the auto shop at high school where the students had you know been donated a car so they had this giant wagon had wood paneling and um you know so the, the students fully restored it and i bought it for like 200 bucks and and uh we had a pretty good time in that thing but then really kind of my bread and butter car when high school was a like a it was a honda civic hatchback that i bought with like ninety thousand miles on it and um, I loved that car. It was great. Handled pretty good. It was pretty lightweight. And uh, then I sold it, I think, when I went to college. And I think the depreciation was like $400. It was amazing. So <laughs> here I am, uh, you know, almost 30 years later, and I'm racing for Honda uh, at the Indy 500. And you could probably get a much better deal with them today. Uh, you can't be free. No, there you go. Free 99. That's what I always like to say. <laughs> uh, so of the cars you've had, what car would you wish you could get back? I mean, a car you let go, a car that you sold, and you thought, man, if I only had that car today. You know, my, my passion uh, in terms of kind of everyday uh, mobility was always motorcycles. So um, I had a Ducati uh, Superbike that I loved, um, and I, I wish I still had that just because it was beautiful. I mean, just I, I love uh, I love the look of exotic uh, motorcycles, especially Italian bikes. And um, and so I wish I still had that. These days, it's pretty boring. I got a, a couple of couple of Porsches, a, a Macan, and a and a 911, um, and uh, just sort of daily drivers. And the thing is that when you're a professional, like IndyCar driver, there's nothing you can buy on the street that comes close to the performance of our race cars. I race uh, for Ferrari at Le Mans, and, and I've been racing for Lamborghini in the professional sports car series this year. So um, I've been lucky in that respect to drive a lot of amazing cars. But there's nothing like the IndyCar at Indianapolis in terms of performance. Yeah, and that's really hard because my next question is, okay, what car out there would you like to have next? 
And a lot of people will sit there and think about, well, what's a car that's great, that handles well? But, man, after the cars you drive, anything that you drive on the street is going to be like like nothing. Kind of a letdown. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I, I, really don't, uh, I really don't lust after, you know, a lot, of, a lot of street cars. And I guess just because I get to race, you know, the Ferrari that we race at Le Mans is, um, you know, take the 458, which is their kind of bread-and-butter mid-engine uh, sports car for the street, and if you stripped everything out of it and just had the shell and then rebuilt it with the lightest carbon fiber and titanium parts, and uh, that's basically what we race at Le Mans. And, um, and it's an incredible car. They, they, you know, Ferrari does a great job. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything that I look at right now and go, boy, I'd love to have, uh, you know, this or that. Um <laughs> You know, there's probably a couple motorcycles that uh, that look pretty great. The new Ducati looks amazing. Um, you know, there's a, a the new Honda CRF 450. I like to ride motocross for fun when I'm I'm back home in LA for training. So you know, stuff like that. I'm a little maybe more off the beaten path. Indy 500's uh, Townsend Bell joining us here on uh, talking about cars. You know, with the Indy 500 looming, uh, this is an opportunity. You finished uh, fourth in the. Um in the uh, qualifying this year. Uh, so you're, you're in the second row. How does that help you? How does that hurt you uh, as you go into this race? Uh, it helps start up front. I've started um, fourth before. Um, I've started 24th before. Uh, and I, I definitely prefer to start up front. It's, you know, I only have to pass three cars to win. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's clean air too. You know, at the speeds we're traveling, uh, it's it's your it's a lot like racing airplanes. Um, you know, in qualifying, uh, my trap speed going into turn one uh, was 242 miles an hour, and you know the average lap is 231 miles an hour. But you're turning into the corner at 240, and um, uh, you know you're 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 dealing with a lot of air moving across the car, and, and it's very sensitive to that. So in the race, if you're starting way in the back, you have a ton of turbulent air in front of you. Uh, but if you get to start out front, um, in a lot of ways, it, it, it makes things quite a bit easier on the first stint, and you can hopefully settle into a nice pace. You don't have to lead necessarily right away, but um, you know you're, you're kind of already already in the top five, which is where you want to be to position yourself for the for the end. And you gotta remember, it's about three hours the whole race and 500 miles, and it's a long ways from start to finish, but uh, it's nice to nice to be in a top five starting spot for sure. You've done this for so many years. How long did it take you to get used to doing 245 miles an hour? Um, you know, you kind of build a little bit of a tolerance to it, but if I'm being candid, it's the only IndyCar race that I do each year, and so that first day of practice, it's uh, you know, it, it's basically like. Um, you know, a big chunk of wasabi or something. It, 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 it wakes you up in a big way. And uh, uh, it's fun, though, man. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. What does it mean to do well at, at an Indy 500? What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, to me, it's the biggest race in the world. It's the ultimate prize in racing. Um, it's the highest peak, if you will. And this year is extra special. It's the 100th running of the Indy 500. Um, and it's the first time since 1950 i believe that the race is completely sold out there'll be over 350,000 fans there watching on race day um and and consequently they removed the local blackout in, in indiana for the first time since 1950 so um it's just you know by by far and away the, the biggest race of the year in the world and to do well 
is that really there's nothing, there is no doing well. You either win or you don't. And, and so, you know, that, that's, that's obviously the, the only focus is what do we have to do to win? Um, a top five finish doesn't really mean much. Uh, it's, it's, it's all about being the top guy and, and, and having that Borg Warner trophy in the glass of milk. And you, as I understand it, you have to tell them in advance what kind of milk you want. I found that interesting. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. You went whole they, milk, right? Uh, yeah, I, I like, you know, if I'm going to win the race, I'm going to go, as an American, you got to go full octane and just uh, stick <laughs> the tradition. Yeah. No non-fat for you. No, no, no. Forget that. Uh, yeah, and, of course, since it's the Milk Advisory Board, no one's going to throw almond milk out there. I understand that. I don't think so. No, no, I completely understand that. Tell me about your best finish in Indy and, and your feeling about how that was at the time. Uh, 2009, I finished fourth. Um, I started 24th in that race, passed a bunch of cars, um, had a great race car, uh, and, you know, was there at the end. But like I said earlier, I, I can vividly remember getting out of the car and, um, you know, just down pit lane was, uh, uh, Elio Castroneves, you know, celebrating with his crew. And I just remembered feeling the disappointment of being thinking, man, it's right there. I was, I, w- I could, you know, with just a few, three three positions back from Elio, we were all running in the train and and just thinking to myself, man, I uh, uh, next time I'm in this position, I don't I don't want to finish in the top five. I got to win. Um, and so, you know, in the end, you, you end up satisfied that you you know did your best on race day and performed maybe above expectations. I was with a smaller team and kind of a limited program, um, and we punched above our weight, but. Uh, now I'm in a position where I'm with a, you know, one of the top teams with Andretti Honda. Um, we qualified well. We were disappointed to not be on pole because we have a very fast car. And so the expectations are, uh, are high for good reason. Strange things you do to promote the race. I understand you're doing a pizza flipping contest with one of the Andrettis. Yeah, we've got, uh, so one of my sponsors is California Pizza Kitchen. Um, and you know, they've, they've gone back to hand tossing their dough like they did back when they first started the restaurant. So, uh, I've challenged Mario Andretti to a pizza dough tossing competition this afternoon. So that should be fun. Good luck with that. (laughs) All right, buddy. (laughs) You think you're going to be able to take care of Mario? That's actually, you may, he's kind of an older guy now. Well, he's Italian and he's as cool as they come, man. He's like 70 something years old and still drives the two seat Indy car. Race car driver Townsend Bell, who finished 21st at the 2016 Indy 500. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you're listening on iTunes, please help us out. Take a moment to rate us and write a review. And most important, subscribe to Talking About Cars. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us and follow us and spread the word. Let your car friends know all about the great guests and cool stories we have on all of of our Talking About Cars podcast. Also, check out our videos with our partners at Generation Auto. Head over to YouTube and look up Generation Auto. One word, Generation Auto. No space between the generation and auto and see what we have to offer. Until next week, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.